Good morning. It's my pleasure this morning to uh, be able to teach on our kind of All Saints Day Sunday. Uh, Technically, I know that's coming up on Tuesday, but we'll be celebrating uh, All Saints Day uh, today. And so this makes today a little bit unusual. We have a tradition at Three Rivers Church on All Saints Day where uh, instead of looking at a text from the scriptures, which is what we normally do, we normally teach expositorily through uh, a text. We've been going through the book of Acts for most of this year. But on All Saints Day, we take some time and we look and see how God has worked through history and through the lives of saints who have gone before us. And so every year we choose uh, a person from the history of the church and we focus on their life and we ask the question what we can be taught about God and about his work and be encouraged through the example of the saints who've gone before us. So if you're visiting with us today, this is abnormal. We don't normally do this. We will not be looking at a whole lot of scripture today, and that is very unlike our church if you've been around for any amount of time. But um, we'll be looking today at the life of C.S. Lewis. Um, Before we get started, I'm just going to say a couple things on the front end. Uh, First, that um, it's a little bit more challenging in some ways to do a message like this because uh, when you're teaching through a text, it's kind of bounded, whereas Uh, You know, with Lewis, there's just so much that we could talk about. So I'm going to try to stick pretty close to my manuscript. Um, There are literally dozens of things that are jumping in my mind right now that I could get rabbit trailed on. So if I should end up following some of those rabbit trails, um, I'm going to have my manuscript available online that you can access after the service. Um, I will try to make sure that we get out at a reasonable time and that we don't stay here forever and ever. Uh, You would not want to hear me preach again after that. Um, So that's one thing. Uh, And then the second thing is... um, I just want to, I'm probably going to be reading a lot more than I normally do as part of trying to stay disciplined. So I'm going to try to uh, keep it uh, short and disciplined and on point. So let's pray and then uh, we'll dive into the life of C.S. Lewis. Uh, Father, uh, we thank you that you don't just reveal yourself through your word, but that you are active and working in the world around us and you're active in the lives of your people and you're active in history. And so, God, I pray that you would give us spiritual eyes to see uh, you, not just in your word, but in your world. Um, God, I also pray that today, as we look at the life of C.S. Lewis, that you would help us not to be attracted to the wisdom of a man, that you would not build the faith of your people on the words of wisdom that I might try to share or even that Lewis might have written, but that, God, um, in all of this, that we would be signposts that point to your greater glory. And so, God, would you please uh, do that for the good of your people and for your glory. In Christ's name, amen. So, as I said, we're going to be looking today at the life of C.S. Lewis, and I can honestly say that he has probably influenced me more than almost any other Christian author or thinker that I've come across Um, C.S. Lewis played a big role in uh, both my childhood and my young adulthood, especially in the years when I was transitioning from high school into college. Um, Part of my story um, is that I've spent time in in that season of my life questioning uh, the Christian faith and questioning the existence of God and whether what I believed was really real and how did I know. And so I went through a season of time of questioning, and and Lewis was one of those teachers that, that God put in my path through his writings that helped me navigate through that time in my life. So he's had a profound influence in shaping my Christian walk, and a lot of the the subsequent teachers and pastors and writers that I came across, I kind of filtered through this 
lens of things I had encountered in C.S. Lewis and in his writings. So I very much uh, care about this man, uh, even though I never met him. Uh, he, was, he had already uh, died before I was born. Um, I feel in some ways as though he's almost like one of my own flesh and blood teachers that I've had in the past. Um, that being said, um, I also feel very humble today to be talking about him. There's part of me that strongly wanted to do this for All Saints Day, and there's another part of me that uh, feels like I'm not going to be able to do it justice, uh, right? If uh, I'm sure all of you have probably encountered at least some of his writings, and you know that he wrote very uh, broadly on a whole lot of different topics. And so uh, it's very difficult to figure out how to boil down uh, such a spiritual giant, such a prolific thinker and writer, in just the time that we have uh, this morning. So that said, um, we're going to look at his life, and then we're going to look at, I think, two themes that show up in his writings that will uh, summarize some of the project that he was about uh, and ways that that can help us as we uh, continue to wrestle with the faith and collide with our culture. So looking at uh, the life of C.S. Lewis, um, Clive Staples Lewis uh, was born in 1898 in Belfast, Ireland. Um, with a name like Clive Staples. Uh, his friends nicknamed him Jack, and you can understand why. Um, and so he grew up uh, in a family in Ireland. Um, his father was a lawyer, and his mother was from uh, a respectable family on the outskirts of the upper classes in British society. And so, uh, so C.S. Lewis grew up in a, a pretty well-to-do home and a pretty uh, affluent uh, set of circumstances. Um, they were living in Ireland in uh, the United Kingdom, and so not to get too sidetracked into history, but uh, when Lewis was born, Ireland was still part of uh, the United Kingdom, was still part of England, and during his lifetime, there was a revolutionary movement in Ireland to split away, and so there's, uh, there was and there still is some tense political relationships between Ireland and England. So here you have C.S. Lewis and his family. He's English. He's Protestant. Uh, growing up in, in Northern Ireland, uh, and that was, that's going to be very different from the experience of other people in Ireland. He would have had a different social, economic, religious, political experience than the Irish majority. Um, but he was growing up there in, in a beautiful part of Ireland, and uh, the beauty of the country is one of the things that influenced him at an early age. In terms of his education, um, Lewis really started going to school uh, right around the same time that his mother died. His mother died when he was nine years old. It was one of the most tragic events in his early life. And then after that, he was sent to boarding schools as part of kind of the English model of education. Um, in these boarding schools, he suffered um, a lot of abuse. Just, it's really pretty horrific. Um, I don't want to go into a whole lot of details about the things that he experienced in school because that would distract from more important points today. Um, but many of the schools that, um, that the English had at that point, there was just a lot of uh, corporal punishment and just frank abuse by adults uh, on students. And so uh, he had a pretty rough uh, educational experience. However, there were two things that happened in his early education that would affect him for the rest of his life. Um, the first is that at a very young age, Lewis is going to experience something that he called joy. And we'll be talking a little bit more about that uh, down the road. But he experienced joy through reading poetry and myths, particularly Norse mythology, 
which I think is pretty cool because I also like Norse mythology. Um, and so he uh, described that sensation of joy that, that washed over him as uh, northernness. Uh, and this was probably closer to a religious experience for Lewis than the kinds of things that he would have experienced in church. Uh, the church at that point, the Church of England for Lewis felt very uh, formal. It was interesting as a historical relic, but it was not somewhere where he was passionately encountering Christ. And so uh, his closest religious experience came through reading these stories about Norse gods and myths and stories. And that's going to affect him because that's going to shape his desire to pursue a literary career. Uh, and later we'll, we'll talk about how he was uh, a professor uh, and he was very devoted to literature. Um, the second thing that happened in his education is that during his uh, final years of preparatory school before heading off into college, he studied under a man named William Kirkpatrick, who was a rationalist atheist. Now, by this point in Lewis's life, he had already been drifting away from uh, the faith uh, in God from his childhood towards atheism for various emotional reasons. But when he was sitting under uh, Kirkpatrick, that's where uh, he got the intellectual ammunition against uh, belief in God. And so as a result, he became a confirmed and devout uh, atheist uh, during this time period. He rejected the Christianity of his youth that he had uh, been raised in. On the other hand, even after he converted back to Christianity later in life, he still had a very uh, good relationship with this particular teacher and respected him and loved him as a man and, and said that he was one of the best and most influential teachers that he had had in his life, particularly because Kirkpatrick's teaching style uh, emphasized a relentless pursuit of truth and a relentless use of logic, no matter the consequences. And that was something that would shape Lewis and his thinking and in his writing and have a profound influence on him, uh, even after he became a Christian down the road. I think it's also interesting here, and this is a theme that we see developing across Lewis's life, and, uh, and I'll talk more about it in a minute too, is the idea of the sovereignty of God as God continued to pursue Lewis, even when Lewis wasn't pursuing God. And so even as he was coming into the full flowering of his atheism, uh, at about 17 years of age, he read a book called Fantasies by a Christian author named George MacDonald. And he said this was a very profound experience for him because, once again, he had this experience of joy. But for the first time, the experience of joy was combined with the concept of holiness. And from this, he began to start seeing some of the emotional appeal of Christianity even before he was able to come back around to understanding it from a logical level. Um, he said later in life that this experience baptized his imagination, um, even though it was years before he converted back to Christianity. Well, in 1916, Lewis graduates from school and he heads off where he had won a uh, scholarship to, to study at Oxford University. But before his first term of service, uh, or for his first term as a student was up at Oxford, uh, he left Oxford and entered military service. This is in the middle of World War I. Um, and so he arrived on the front lines of France in 1917 on his 19th birthday. And he spent months fighting in the trenches on the front lines in World War I. Uh, during this time, he saw many of his former friends and classmates killed. Um, that was a horrific war. Um, you know, it led to the loss of, of basically a generation of young people in, in Europe. And so um, many of the people that Lewis knew growing up uh, were killed in the war. He himself was wounded uh, by shrapnel in three places from an artillery shell that exploded near him in the trench. And uh, that caused him to be taken out of frontline duty, put into hospital, 
And uh, during his convalescence, as he recovered from that wound, uh, the war ended, and so did his military career. Um, this is straying a little bit from my manuscript, but I just think it's amazing when we consider the life of C.S. Lewis and to see how profoundly joy in God ended up shaping him is if you've ever read Lewis, he comes across very positively in his writings. I won't say as an optimist, but very hopeful and very redemptive. But the experiences he had between the death of his mother, his abuse as a child, going through World War I, I mean, he went through some pretty traumatic experiences. And there's a lot of people that going through things that were similar to his life experience may have come out bitter and resentful and cold on the back end of that, but that did not happen for Lewis. And I think that that's one of the telling works of God in his life and in our life as well, that God can use suffering in a redemptive way and cause us to still have a hopeful, joyful outlook on life despite suffering. In any case, in 1919, after the war, he went back to Oxford and began to study there, and he began to achieve some uh, distinction as a student, as a thinker, as a writer. By the time he was uh, 26 in 1925, he started teaching full-time at Oxford University. And around this same time, he began to drift back into Christianity. Um, he is going to describe this experience in his spiritual autobiography is, is that God was playing a game of chess with him and was maneuvering the pieces across the board to put Lewis right where he wanted him to be. And, uh, and so he ends up reading various uh, works of Christian literature, uh, some of his friends and colleagues, uh, particularly his friendship with J.R.R. Tolkien, among others, uh, played a significant role in bringing him back into the faith. And so slowly, step by step, uh, God maneuvered Lewis back into a position of converting from atheism back into theism. And at that point, he began to attend church. Uh, and he said it wasn't so much because at this point he was ready to accept uh, Jesus as God yet, uh, but simply because in his conversion to theism, he felt like he needed to do something. So he started attending church. And uh, as a process of being in church for several more years, he does come back uh, to Christianity. In his spiritual autobiography, Surprised by Joy, Lewis wrote of his conversion experience. In the, in the Trinity term of 1929, I gave in and admitted God was God and knelt and prayed, perhaps that night the most dejected and reluctant convert in all of England. It is a significant fact about Lewis, and if we're honest, I think also about ourselves, that he recognized his reluctance to become a Christian. Often today, Christianity is described as wishful thinking, uh, as something that people pursue because of the personal gratification they expect from it. But that was not the case for Lewis. He believed in Christianity because he felt compelled to do so um, by the reasonableness of Christianity and by the joy that it brought to him, not because it was in fulfillment of some personal wish or some personal agenda. He wrote of the experience, Every step I had taken from absolute to spirit and from spirit to God had been a step toward the more concrete, the more imminent, the more compulsive. At each step, one had less chance to call one's soul one's own. To accept the incarnation was a further step in the same direction. It brings God nearer or nearer in a new way. And this I found was something I had not wanted, but to recognize the ground for my evasion was, of course, to recognize both its shame and its futility. I know very well when, but hardly how, the final step was taken. I was driven to Whipsnade one sunny morning. When we set out, I did not believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, and we re when we reached the zoo, I did. Freedom or necessity, or do they differ at their maximum? At that maximum, a man is what he does. There is nothing of him left over or outside the act. 
So Lewis clearly felt that God had pursued him, had uh, maneuvered him into accepting the gospel. I don't know whether or not Lewis would fit in a neat, tidy, reformed category according to some of the way that we might structure our theology, but he also certainly recognized that whatever degree of choice that he played was also mixed in with a heavy dose of God's sovereign direction in his life. Um, on some level, he said, for the life of him, he can never decide whether he had made this as a freely chosen act or whether he had been forced into it by God. He could not decide that even uh, down the road as, as a later adult. I think it's also significant when we look at this to consider uh, how gracious God is, that he's willing to save people on these terms. Um, you know, Lewis, in describing his conversion to Christianity, you know, almost said that he, he became Christian kicking and screaming just about. He was dragged in through the door. Right? But the fact that God has so much love and compassion and grace towards us, towards his people, that he is willing to condescend and to stoop to find children among such unwilling folks, uh, such hard-hearted folks, I think it's a testimony to the gospel and how that was displayed in Lewis's life. Once he became a Christian, though, even though he may have been reluctant to get there, he was all in while simultaneously becoming perhaps the world's leading expert in medieval English literature and a classicist and a literary critic of distinction, Lewis also began writing and speaking in defense of Christianity. From 1941 to 1942, during the World War II years, Lewis gave a series of radio broadcasts which later formed the core of one of his most famous books, Mere Christianity. It also made him an internationally famous Christian apologist and thinker. In fact, his fame was such that he actually made the cover of Time magazine in 1947. Meanwhile, uh, back at Oxford, Lewis had been having some difficulty. Uh, even though he was an amazing professor and had uh, a lot of fame internationally, uh, he had not yet been offered a full professorship by the faculty at Oxford. Uh, many of the faculty colleagues that he worked with were jealous of Lewis, both because of his immense popularity with students as well as because of his fame internationally. And uh, that's something that rubbed him uh, very much the wrong way. He had to wrestle through that. Um, but during this time period, he was offered a position at Cambridge, which was Oxford's rival. And so he finally became a full professor in medieval and Renaissance English at the University of Cambridge in 1955. It was around this same time that Lewis began publishing some of his most famous books, including The Chronicles of Narnia, which has become a beloved classic uh, piece of children's literature. In 1956, at the age of 57, Lewis was married for the first time to a woman named Joy Davidman, who was an American widow living in England. Um, ironically, at first, uh, she was just looking to get English citizenship, so they had developed a friendship, and just to help her out, uh, he agreed to marry her, uh, not so much to be her husband, but just to allow her to be an English citizen so that she would not be uh, deported back to the United States. But they continued to maintain their friendship after their marriage, and then it blossomed into a real and genuine and authentic uh, marriage relationship. Um, However, as, as good as it was, it was also short-lived. Within four years of their marriage, Joy was diagnosed with and died of cancer. A few short years later, Lewis himself died, just short of his 65th birthday on November 22, 1963, the same day that JFK was assassinated in Dallas, Texas. While the rest of the world was looking in horror at what was happening politically in the United States, one of the greatest giants of the 20th century quietly slipped away. Before we look at some of the positive contributions that Lewis has made to my life and I think to uh, the ways in which he spoke prophetically to the culture, I do want to provide a few warnings about Lewis, though. 
when we look at all the good things that he's done, I have a pastoral concern that not everything he said was good or true or aligns with where, as a church, we land theologically. And there are two reasons why I think we should consider some of the problems about Lewis. Um, first, and, and I kind of alluded to this when I was praying a while ago, is that we need to be reminded that no one is a perfect guide to Christianity but Christ himself. He has given us his word. He has given us his Holy Spirit. He's given us the body of, of Christ. And all of these tools are more reliable than the best of us, right? Um, we should not depend on some person's teaching uh, ultimately to be a Christian. We should always look back to the source, back to Christ, back to his word. And so that's true uh, with Lewis. That's true with regard to myself. Uh, please always, uh, whoever sits up here and, and teaches on Sunday, take what we say and filter it through the scriptures. That is our authority. That is our source. We're not building the faith on the wisdom of men, but on the supernatural power of the gospel and the word of God. And then secondly, some of you uh, may want to go and read about Lewis, and I want to just warn you, there are a few areas where you might be ambushed along the way, areas where I think he made some substantial errors. Um, what I'm about to discuss is not an exhaustive list of points of disagreement with Lewis, but they do represent a few areas that I consider to be substantial errors in his teachings. Other people may add more things to this list or say that what I've added was maybe going too far. Um, and this is precisely why we need to take everything to the Word of God, because we can't ultimately rely on a human teacher. So uh, with that said, there's a couple of areas where Lewis has received a lot of criticism in uh, the evangelical world. Uh, first, he had a problematic view of Scripture. Um, we have to understand that Lewis was a professor of English literature, and so he approaches the Scripture first and foremost as a literary critic. Uh, he was quick to see uh, qualities that he considered mythic, and I have to say that Lewis uses the word myth in a complicated way. Um, when we say myth, we automatically mean something that's a fictional, made-up story that's not really true. Uh, he didn't define myth quite so in such black and white terms. He's going to say that myth can be true and at the same time have uh, some fictional parts to it. So he has a very complicated way in which he uses myth. But nonetheless, he looked at the Old Testament as primarily being Hebrew mythology that God had taken and elevated to the status of his word in an almost sacramental way. One of the implications of Lewis treating the scriptures like a myth is that he didn't always hold to a firm belief in inerrancy, and he considered some passages that historic Christians had considered to be fact as mythic, like the book of Genesis, and there are theological uh, implications that follow from that. Um, so he did not have what we might consider an orthodox view on inerrancy with regard to Scripture. But I will say this, to contextualize this fairly, Lewis spent far more time defending the Scriptures than critiquing it. And he also most emphatically did not believe that the Gospels themselves were myths. Uh, he would write at one point that he had spent his whole life studying myths. And when he read the Gospels, that did not have the flavor of all the various myths that he had read across his life as a literary critic. And so he very quickly accepted the Gospel accounts uh, as historical fact. The other thing to consider is that... Um, even though he had a weaker view of inerrancy than we might be comfortable with, he also did not reject the teachings of the church. Usually when people start undermining the authority of the scriptures, they do so so that they can change its theology to fit their agenda. And Lewis did not do that. Uh, he continued to defend orthodox uh, Christian teachings and was quick to point people back to the authority of church uh, and, and of, the, of the Bible. And he would tell of himself that he was an amateur. And so uh, he was not seeking to undermine uh, any position that the church had staked out. 
Um, also, we can benefit from Lewis because his insights as a literary critic reminds us that the Bible is not a systematic theology text. And I think that subsequently in the field of biblical studies, we become more sensitive uh, to the various narrative elements that come out in Scripture. And that's something that Lewis saw very clearly, uh, maybe more so than, than some of us uh, who don't have his same expertise with regard to literature. A second area where Lewis has a problematic relationship is his relationship with evolution, possibly because of his earlier treatment of Genesis as a myth, possibly because of his earlier time as, a, as an atheist and his attachment to scientific rationalism. Lewis seems to accept and at points even to integrate aspects of Darwinian evolution into his teaching. In fact, he would probably be considered a theistic evolutionist if we were looking at his position in today's terms. Uh, and he did not seem to see the massive theological problems that that stance uh, poses uh, for Orthodox Christianity. On the other hand, in one of his essays entitled The Funeral of a Great Myth, Lewis identified popular evolutionary teaching as itself a myth. He distinguished between two different theories of evolution. There's a cosmic theory of evolution, which is a theory of progress, and he distinguished that from a biological theory of evolution as a theory of biological change. And he said that that first viewpoint, this notion that evolution is a myth of cosmic progress, was a myth. It was a story. It was a powerful story. He said that he felt as moved by it as any myth he had ever read in the classics, that it's a myth that can take, uh, capture our imagination, it can capture our heart and our values and guide our life, but it's not true. Um, so he was willing to reject uh, some of the implications that evolution has extended into other fields outside of biology, but he retained a belief in biological evolution. I wonder if he might have, because of his willingness to entertain some critical reservations about the cosmic theory of evolution, if he might have been willing to reject some of the biological side, if he had had access to some of the information we have today that was not as available uh, back in his day in the 1950s and 60s. Probably one of the most challenging positions that Lewis had was his uh, view of those who have never heard the gospel, the problem of the untold. Um, this is something that comes out clearly in one of his uh, books in the Chronicles of Narnia in The Last Battle. Um, Lewis writes about a character named Emmeth who worshiped the false god Tash, who nevertheless makes it into Aslan's country, or basically heaven. Um, Aslan, who's the Christ figure, tells Emmeth that the good things Emmeth did for Tash were in fact done for Aslan, even though Emmeth used the wrong name, just as people who did wicked things in Aslan's name were ultimately serving Tash. In some of his other writings, Lewis speculated it was possible for a person who didn't have a knowledge of Christ and the Gospels to nonetheless be saved based on a speculative reading of the parable of the sheep and the goats in Matthew 25. Some opponents of the gospel, like Rob Bell, have attempted to justify their belief in universalism or the belief that everyone goes to heaven uh, by co-opting Lewis's writings in some of these more speculative uh, frames of mind. Um, any of you who've read the Chronicles of Narnia have probably come across that passage and wrestled with it. So what are we to make of this and what are we to make of Lewis? Um, well, first of all, I think there's several things we need to qualify before we write Lewis off flat out as a false teacher. And by the way, I have met people who have taken that position. Um, but I don't think that that's a fair way to treat his writings for several reasons. First, he made it clear from his writings that he was not a universalist. Lewis defended the concept of hell, and he argued that it was populated, even though that that's a very unpopular position to take. So he clearly did not believe everyone is going to go to heaven regardless. 
He also clearly defended and taught that anyone and everyone who ended up in heaven was saved purely on the basis of Christ and his grace and not on the basis of their sincerity or good works, even in these hypothetical rare cases. I think that Lewis basically preferred to be charitable and gracious and willing to accept the possibility that God might save some outside of a knowledge specifically of Christ rather than being dogmatic when it came to the problem of the untold. Additionally, Lewis saw Christianity as a fulfillment of paganism, and he saw things in pagan myths which caused uh, him to experience joy and which he thought of as being precursors to the gospel in some way. And so it's quite probable that he hoped some of his favorite pagan writers and thinkers may have somehow attained uh, to Christianity in this sort of backdoor way. He's also clear that his stance on this issue was speculative, and he emphasized that it would be better for the concern for the untold to drive us to evangelism rather than to sit around and speculate about it. And this is something that he certainly practiced as well as preached because he devoted most of his uh, public life to evangelistic ministry, both in England and abroad, even though by nature and by disposition, he really preferred to be an introverted hermit. So um, he was willing to violate the boundaries of his own comfort zone to try to share the gospel with as many people as possible. And I think that that, that is a telling thing for Lewis as well, that he wasn't uh, taking the approach of some universalist that we can just sort of sit back and not worry about evangelism and that God's going to save everybody and it's not a big deal. Uh, Lewis did not teach those things. So we have a couple of challenges in Lewis's thinking that, that I wanted to deal with, but I wanted to frame the rest of our time uh, looking at the positive contributions of C.S. Lewis in light of a command from Psalm 34, verses 8 through 10, which says, Taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Fear the Lord, you his saints, for those who fear him lack nothing. The lions may grow weary and hungry, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. When we look at this command in Psalm 34, to taste and to see, I think that we can summarize the work of Lewis in basically attempting to fulfill those two commands. Uh, John Piper uh, talked about this as well. He, he called Lewis a romantic rationalist, and that these are the two streams of thought that we find uh, throughout all of his writings. What, is he, what do we mean by this? Uh, first, we see that, that Lewis helps us see the goodness of God through logic and reason and by arguing for the rational defense of the scriptures and of the teachings of Christianity. Um, the incarnation of Christ, uh, truth, uh, truth as the person of Christ, is a satisfying, coherent, rational concept to our minds. If Christianity is to be true, it must satisfy us intellectually. But secondly, he's also a romantic. He helps us not only see the truth of Christianity in an intellectual way, he helps us to taste the goodness of God, to be able to approach God through joy and imagination. And this is a way that we experience him powerfully and emotionally. Theology is not supposed to just leave us with uh, dead analytical truths. It's supposed to lead us to, to passionate worship. And sometimes we kind of tend to separate these two things. We have people who are either really good thinkers, but they're really cold and they're really dead. Or you have people who are really super passionate about Christ, but they haven't spent a lot of time thinking about theology. And so Lewis, in his own life, kind of married these two themes. And he showed us how we can both see God in, in our minds and taste God through joy and imagination. And so I want to talk about a couple of different contributions he's made uh, in the light of these two uh, broad themes. First, let's look at how Lewis helps us see God in our minds. 
Uh, first of all, Lewis was relentlessly clear and logical in his thinking. Lewis was taught to value truth so highly and to pursue logic that he would take things uh, to their logical conclusion no matter what the consequences. He did not fling a word, uh, ra- words around thoughtlessly without uh, considering all the various assumptions that, that uh, people sometimes use in language. We, we often speak without really thinking about what it is that we're saying or what it is that we mean. Uh, Lewis did not do that. He was very careful in his use of language. It's amazing how so much of the problems that modern people have with Christianity is the result of assumptions, misconceptions, poor communication, even downright deception in in our language, and that that clouds our minds. Um, This is an episode from his youth uh, when he was still training with Kirkpatrick, that atheist we were talking about earlier. Um, But this is part of the mental training that he underwent as, as a young person that helped shake him from this habit of using language thoughtlessly. Uh, He writes, I began to make conversation with Kirkpatrick in the deplorable manner in which I had acquired at evening parties. I said I was surprised at the scenery of Surrey. It was much wilder than I had expected. Stop, shouted Kirk with a suddenness that made me jump. What do you mean by wildness and what grounds had you for not expecting it? It had, heaven help me, never occurred to me that what I called my thoughts needed to be based on anything. Kirk once more drew a conclusion, without the slightest sign of emotion, but equally without the slightest concession to what I thought good manners. Do you not see, then, that you had no right to have any opinion, whatever, on the subject? Um, When I look at this passage, and I consider just even in his uh, conversations how Lewis was so careful to think about what he actually meant, um, and I consider that when I look at my own conversations, I'm very challenged. Um, This, 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 there's really some pretty good uh, sense here for us, especially when we think about the world of Facebook and social media. I think we're very quick sometimes to throw out half-thought-out opinions on the internet or to try to take really complex issues and reduce them down to a tweet or a meme. And I think that we could probably save a lot of resentment and misunderstanding and confusion of our life if we would simply follow uh, Kirkpatrick's uh, advice and Lewis's example to think carefully about what we say and then say what we really mean and not to uh, fling words about thoughtlessly. But Lewis wasn't just logical in his language. He was profoundly logical in his thought as well, and he used logic as a tool to help demonstrate the truth of Christianity. One of my favorite examples of Lewis's use of logic in defending Christianity is the famous uh, trilemma from Mere Christianity, which you've probably heard, uh, where he wrote, I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing people often say about Christ. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with the man who says he is a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come up with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. Um, So Lewis used logic beautifully to demonstrate the rationality of the claims of Christianity, and he spoke prophetically uh, against a culture that wanted to make silly claims like that about Christianity, and he said, look, let's look at our our choices logically. Let's look at what's really before us. Either accept Christ as God or reject him, but let's not do this halfway thing where we talk about Christ uh, as a teacher and yet not accept him as God. That's not a path that logically is open to us. 
not only did Lewis use logic in his writings and in his thought uh, to show us the, the truth of Christianity, but he also forcefully argued against postmodernism and uh, relativism in both thinking as well as in morality. Um, it would take way too long to show all the different ways in which he has done this across his writings and across his life. Um, you can read several different books he wrote, uh, Mere Christianity, Nature's, The Abolition of Man. All of these deal with these themes. Um, I want to just talk about one aspect of this uh, where he is arguing against some of the modern uh, lies about our minds and about how uh, about truth that uh, I think are really powerful. Um, I want to particularly argue, this is one of the chief arguments that Lewis gave uh, why he ended up rejecting atheism and accepted and embraced the truth of Christianity. And that was because the atheism basically undermines itself. Uh, and this is what he, he wrote. Supposing there was no intelligence behind the universe, no creative mind, in that case, nobody designed my brain for the purpose of thinking. It is merely that when the atoms inside my skull happen, for physical or chemical reasons, to arrange themselves in a certain way, this gives me as a byproduct the sensation I call thought. But if so, how can I trust my own thinking to be true? It's like upsetting a milk jug and hoping that the way it splashes itself will give you a map of London. But if I can't trust my own thinking, of course I can't trust the arguments leading to atheism and therefore have no reason to be an atheist or anything else. Unless I believe in God, I cannot believe in thought, so I can never use thought to disbelieve in God. Basically, Lewis was showing here that atheism is not able to stand on its own two legs. If materialism is true, then there is no such thing as atheistic reasoning. There's just mental sensations, which does not mean that that is either true or false. Some people want to evade this by pointing out that evolution could have used natural selection to enable us to reason the truth because truth is so useful to us. However, Lewis demonstrates that this doesn't really address his argument. It just pushes it back a level. He wrote, inference itself is on trial. We want to be reassured, and the reassurance turns out to be one more inference. If useful, then true. As if this inference were not, once we accept the evolutionary picture, under the same suspicion as all the rest. If the value of our reasoning is in doubt, you cannot try to establish it by reasoning. So he forcefully argued that you can't really have rational thought or a rational mind and reject God and reject traditional understandings about truth and the nature of reality. You either have to start with God or you have to start with your mind. And at the end of the day, if we start with God, we can get our mind. We can understand and argue why we have the ability to think about things. But if you start with your mind, you just end up with goo. Um, when you look at the Bible, the Bible makes a very similar claim about itself. It says in Proverbs 1.7, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and discipline. So Lewis used his mind to help us understand that we can't really have truth or to think about truth unless we start with God. Thirdly, when we look at Lewis as uh, someone who helps us to see God through logic, he, he lived and he taught an integrated worldview. He knew that all truth is God's truth, and if God is real, then the implications affect everything. Too often in the church, we want to separate out what happens on Sunday morning from what happens in the rest of life, and Lewis recognized you can't do that. If Christianity is true, it affects everything. From the, fear, from the sheer example of his own life, uh, we see that Lewis lived out an integrated worldview. Listen to this quote from uh, John Piper uh, when he's talking about the contributions of Lewis. 
He said, before his death in 1963, Lewis found time to produce some first quality works of literary history, literary criticism, theology, philosophy, autobiography, biblical studies, historical philology, fantasy, science fiction, letters, poems, sermons, formal and informal essays, a historical novel, a spiritual diary, religious allegory, short stories, and children's novels. Clive Staples Lewis was not a man, he was a world, right? So he wrote broadly in many different areas of his life and showed how Christianity affected all of it. In his writings, Lewis makes a similar argument. He says, we can make people often attend to the Christian point of view for half an hour or so, but the moment they have gone away, they are plunged back into a world where the opposite position is taken for granted. What we want is not, not more little books about Christianity, but more little books by Christians on other subjects with their Christianity latent. It is not books on Christianity that will re really trouble a naturalist, but he would be troubled if whenever he wanted a cheap popular introduction to some science, the best work on the market was always by a Christian. I encountered this in Lewis years before I started coming to Three Rivers and hearing about domain engagement, right? But this feels exactly what we try to tell uh, to folks all the time, that God has called you to domain of society, and that when you go there and you do that excellently to the glory of God, and you do it in a way that's distinctively Christian, that you end up having a profound apologetic influence by showing people that Christianity affects all of life. It's not isolated to an experience on Sunday morning. So those are some of the ways through his logic, through his discussions about the life of reason and the mind, through his integrated worldview. These are all ways in which Lewis helps us to see the truth about God. But I think probably even more importantly for us, Lewis also worked hard to help us taste God, to taste his goodness. And so I want to talk about a couple of themes from Lewis's writings uh, about how we taste the goodness of God. Um, the first is through the pursuit of joy. This is one of the most important themes in Lewis's life. Um, he writes in Mere Christianity, the Christian says, creatures are not born with desires unless satisfaction for those desires exist. A baby feels hunger. Well, there is such a thing as food. If I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. If none of my earthly pleasures satisfy it, that does not prove the universe is a fraud. Probably earthly pleasures were never meant to satisfy it, but only to arouse it, to suggest the real thing. For Lewis, the experience of joy was not only one of the most important experiences of his life, but it was a profound pointer to a reality beyond this world. Lewis used the word joy in a very technical way with vastly important implications. So let's look at what he meant when he said joy in his spiritual autobiography. He writes this, The quality common to my experience of joy is that of an unsatisfied desire, which is itself more desirable than any other satisfaction. I call it joy, which is here a technical term and must be sharply distinguished both from happiness and pleasure. Joy, in my sense, has indeed one characteristic and one only in common with them, the fact that anyone who has experienced it will want it again. Apart from that, and considered only in its quality, it might also equally well be called a particular kind of unhappiness or grief. But then it is a kind we want. I doubt whether anyone who has tasted it would ever, if both were in his power, exchange it for all the pleasures in the world. But then joy is never in our power, and pleasure often is. Even though it's not in the above definition, another important quality of joy in Lewis's experience, and certainly in my own, is that it has a tendency to be ephemeral. Almost the very instance you realize you are experiencing it, it tends to vanish. It cannot be manufactured, and it cannot be grasped for long. 
Lewis referred to it as a kind of stab that would unexpectedly hit him from outside as he was going about his life. To understand this concept, maybe think back on some of your own experiences. Perhaps while reading a good book or watching a good movie, or maybe at the birth of your child, or maybe during your first kiss or at your wedding day, or looking at some uh, part of the creation, some magnificent scene uh, on a beach or on a mountain or something like that, you had an experience where you felt this intense longing in your heart. On some level, you realize that this longing is separate from the part of creation that served as a vehicle to introduce it, but it's easy to get confused at this point, and many people do, and instead, they think that whatever it was that they were doing in the creation when they experienced this, this joy was what actually caused it, and they try to replicate it by going back to that experience over and over and over again. For Lewis, uh, one of the earliest ways that he experienced joy was through Norse mythology. So he decided to become obsessed with Norse mythology. He bought everything he could find on Norse stories and sagas and gods and poems. And as he began to do this, he began to realize that he could not replicate the experience of joy simply by reading Norse myths. Sometimes it happened, sometimes it didn't, but it was not in his power to manufacture it. It's a bittersweet experience because we're aware not only of a longing, but also of something that is lost to us. But we, knew, we intuitively know it's better to experience this sense of longing and loss than it is to live a life of sensual gratification without it. If we were to short-circuit a much more detailed evolution of this concept in Lewis's life, in time, Lewis came to realize that joy was a grace given to us by God to awaken us to realize he is the object that the longing was intended to satisfy. In other words, deep down behind all our other desires, longings, pleasures, dreams, and goals, lies a fundamental desire for God. This teaching really rocked my worlds growing up because I never really saw God as being something that was a source of delight. That even behind the sinful things that I was doing in my life, that behind it all and beneath it all, if I were willing to dig down and examine myself, at the base of it all was a longing for God himself and that God exists in order to satisfy our desire, right? This is part of the reason why um, Lewis was able to reason his way around to one of the statements from the creeds, that the chief end of man is to know God and enjoy him forever. Um, God made us to enjoy him. He made us to satisfy ourselves in him. Uh, another metaphor that Lewis used to describe this is this idea that, that God made us to run on himself just as a car is made to run on gasoline. And just like if you try to put you know, catch up in your gas tank, then your car is not going to function properly. In the same way, if we are not feeding ourselves on Christ, if we're not driven by our enjoyment of God, then the human person doesn't work properly, right? And so God is not simply a fact to be believed in. He's a person to be loved and adored and worshiped. Our modern culture gets confused on this point. Christianity is often portrayed as an intellectual system or a moral duty. Even within the church, we sometimes focus too much on thinking the right things and doing the right things in a lifeless, mechanical way. How easy for the evil one to use uh, our lives, or at least use my life, to suggest that there's no joy to be had in Christ. I wish this were not the case, and, and I hope to grow in this particular respect. The fault lies in not properly learning to see how God is gloriously, deeply, is existentially, and emotionally tied with everything about us that matters. One of the greatest revelations that Lewis experienced in his conversion was to realize that his deepest longing was rooted in God, the same God that his mind was compelling him to believe on rational and logical grounds. The alternative to embracing this truth is a kind of hell. 
Some people try to defend themselves by killing off their emotions and anesthetizing their longing for God through pleasure, which we can manufacture. The chilling truth is that we can become successful at this and eventually sink into a state where we can no longer spiritually feel anything. If God grants us success in this endeavor, we are protected from loving him at the cost of our soul. Hell may not be more than this, or hell may be more than this, but it is not less. I want to talk about one more uh, concept quickly, and I'll wrap this up. I know that time is, is getting short. I want to talk about Lewis's use of imagination. Um, Lewis believed and taught that proper or appropriate emotional reactions help us do the hard virtues that we know we need to do. In The Abolition of Man, he writes, Without the aid of trained emotions, the intellect is powerless against the animal organism. In battle, it is not syllogisms that will keep the reluctant nerves and muscles to their post in the third hour of the bombardment. The crudest sentimentalism about a flag or a country or a regiment will be of more use. Lewis argued that the tragedy of modern education is that it debunks our emotions and our imaginations in order to train us as skeptics so that we might not be manipulated by propaganda or deceived by marketing. But the unintended consequence of debunking our emotions and our imagination turns us into passive cynics, what Lewis called men without chest. He writes, all the time, such is the tragic comedy of our situation, we continue to clamor for those very qualities we are rendering impossible. You can hardly open a periodical without coming across the statement that what our civilization needs is more drive or dynamism or self-sacrifice or creativity. In a sort of ghastly simplicity, we remove the organ and demand the function. We make men without chest and expect of them virtue and enterprise. We laugh at honor and are shocked to find traitors in our midst. We castrate and bid the geldings be fruitful. For Lewis, the proper remedy was to use sanctified imagination as a tool to stimulate one another to emotionally feel and desire the very virtues our faith demands. For Lewis, education is a process in teaching our hearts what we should really desire and feel objectively about reality. He writes that for every one pupil who needs to be guarded from a weak excess of sensibility, there are three who need to be awakened from the slumber of cold vulgarity. The task of the modern educator is not to cut down jungles, but to irrigate deserts. The right defense against false sentiments is to inculcate just sentiments. For famished nature will be avenged, and a hard heart is no infallible protection against a soft head. This is why he wrote the Chronicles of Narnia. This is why he wrote the various other works of fiction that he did, whether it's the Space Trilogy um, or Till We Have Faces or other works of fiction. The goal of all of these stories is to help teach children and us the proper way to feel and respond to reality, to help us cultivate just emotions and just sentiments. Furthermore, the advantage of a good story is that it can cause us to see what is true by bypassing the barriers of our prejudices, our biases, and our preconceptions. This is why Lewis came up with the character of Aslan instead of simply writing about Christ, because he wanted his readers to be able to see the truth about who Christ is as revealed in the scriptures without the baggage that gets in the way with all of our modern conceptions and teachings about Jesus. Of course, imagination needs to be biblically disciplined, and we cannot think that good stories or healthy imagination alone without the Holy Spirit is a path to virtue. Yet the Spirit can sanctify our imagination and use it as a means of grace to help us along the way. I think this is part of what the author of Hebrews meant when he wrote in 1024, let us consider how we may spur one another on towards love and good deeds. Practically, a good imagination helps us apprehend through story what we cannot grasp by our intellect alone. 
If a picture is worth a thousand words, I think a good story may be worth more. After all, stories are word pictures. Consider the example of Christ, who taught primarily through parables. Christ had the educational challenge of not only having sinful pupils, but also of having to teach finite creatures the infinite mysteries of God. This is one of the reasons why we may not even have the, the mental or the moral categories to be able to understand uh, God and, and his fullness. So when you look at the New Testament, one of the most common phrases we encounter is, the kingdom of God is like. You know, the kingdom of God is like a field. The kingdom of God is like a treasure. The kingdom of God is like. Jesus does this all the time. He's taking things from our experience to build a bridge through our imagination to things that go beyond our experience. And stories can do that for us. Uh, For Lewis, a good story was a vehicle for our finite nature to contact the transcendent God. There's so many other things that we could talk about in the life of Lewis. There are other areas of his life that have profoundly shaped me. But uh, we don't have time this morning. We've already uh, used up all the time that we really have. Um, Here's what I hope. I hope that if you get nothing else out of what we've discussed this morning, I hope that you see that for for C.S. Lewis, that being a person of faith was somebody who could see and know God rationally, intellectually, logically, but also to enjoy God and to worship him wholeheartedly and to see how both of those things uh, are deeply connected in our identity and our personhood, that Christianity is both emotionally satisfying and intellectually satisfying. And I think that if we grasp these truths, if we come to not only see the goodness of God, but also to taste the goodness of God, then that'll be part of the process of sanctification where our hearts are transformed and we'll be willing to live lives of obedience and we'll be willing to do the crazy things that the scripture tells us to do, to go to the nations and make disciples, to risk our lives, our reputations, and our fortunes, whether here or abroad, and trying to spread the name of Christianity. This, this will not happen if we walk around half doubting God's existence, and it won't happen if we walk around and treat Christianity as a drudgery. And so that's my prayer, is that through uh, this morning's talk, and, and hopefully maybe you can go and read some more Lewis on your own, or better yet, go to the source and look at the scriptures, that you will engage in the same project that Lewis did, to try to see the clarity and the truth of Christianity, but also to taste and enjoy uh, the beauty of Christianity. Would you join me now in worshiping Christ, our King, as we see a glimpse of his glory through the minds and imaginations of one of his creatures? Let's pray. Um, Father, I know that um, ultimately, by my own strength and my own words, I cannot uh, accomplish these tasks. Um, God, I cannot... Um, adequately describe you, nor can I adequately enjoy you and worship you. And so often, God, I confess that my own worship uh, lacks the passion that that you deserve. Um, God, I pray that you would connect the dots for us uh, in our minds and our hearts, that you would rewire the circuitry that's been broken by the fall to help us see you uh, with a clarity that is compelling and at the same time to enjoy you deeply. And I pray, Father, that as we worship you, that you will help us to... um, go beyond just, uh, just the experience emotionally in the moment, but that you would teach us how to worship you in an ongoing way across the week and every aspect of our lives, that you would uh, taste so good to us that we would not but help uh, talk about you to our coworkers, to our friends, to our family, and that we would seek to bring you glory in whatever domain of life you put us in to engage. And so, God, would you do this? that you would build our faith and that you would build our love for you, both for our joy and for your glory. In Christ's name.